Exodus 8, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedchamber, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants, and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, By tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, teach us that there is no one like you. Help us to see that no one can even be compared to you. You hold the power of holiness and of uncleanness. So cleanse us from uncleanness and make us holy, set apart, fit to serve you. Don't let us be like Pharaoh and harden our hearts against your word to us. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've observed before that the plagues are the great school of the power of God. Pharaoh is enrolled in a ten-lesson course. God is teaching him, little by little, this is how powerful I am. This is who I am. You don't know the Lord, chapter 5. Well, I will show you who I am. So the lesson in this second plague that's specifically stated is in verse 9, the incomparability of God. There is no one like the Lord our God. And of course, Pharaoh misses this lesson. Pharaoh flunked this course. Pharaoh comes away from this encounter with the Lord thinking, there's no one like Pharaoh. I outsmarted him again. We'll talk about that. What we see is that God puts frogs on Egypt. Any animal that's not 
that any water animal without fins and scales is unclean, as Moses will go on to say, which is why our Jewish friends don't eat lobster and shrimp. Frogs have no fins, have no scales, therefore they are unclean. They come up and pollute the land of Egypt. And as the frogs pollute Egypt, so the message is clear. God has power over cleanness and over pollution. There is no one like him. There's something a tad ridiculous about this plague. The noble declaration, let my people go that they may serve me. And then the warning, the threat, if you refuse to let them go, I will smite your territory with frogs. Hopping, croaking, but dangerous, deadly, fearsome. What is the Lord thinking? There are some genuinely fearsome animals out there. For instance, the deadliest of all wild animals, I trust you all know what it is, kills almost 2,500 people a year. Hippopotamuses. Yes, tigers kill something around 80 people a year. Hippos kill 40 times that number. There are hippos in Egypt. One can imagine that God says, I will send raging hippos into your land. Now, that would have been great, right? To have Pharaoh chased around his palace by an angry hippo while all the servants laugh, at least if they're pretty sure the hippo's going to win. But God doesn't threaten them with hippos or wild boars, wolves, wild dogs, not even fighting chickens or billy goats, animals that are, you know, slightly more dangerous than a frog, but not exactly deadly. No, this is a a frog, a nuisance animal, a pest, if there ever was one. Some of you are so far gone that you sleep with dogs. But I don't think anybody here sleeps with their amphibian frog, salamander, or otherwise. But that's the threat, right? They will come up into your bed, your house, your bedchamber, bed, houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. God gets this plague down to the nitty-gritty. Blood was going to be on wood and stone. That's a little vague. But there's nothing vague about the kneading bowl and the oven. Now, we instinctively recognize the concept of ritual purity and pollution that's here because our society is equally addicted to that same concept. We practice all sorts of ritual purity practices every single day. And we do it not, of course, in the name of whatever god the Egyptians worshipped, but in the name of the god of health, the god of hygiene. It's imperative that we wash our hands. It's imperative that we don't touch dirty things like toilets. It's imperative that if we are polluted by some kind of something... And we have a whole list of unclean items from chemicals to bodily fluids that we get that washed off immediately. How many times have you heard someone describe themselves as gross because they need a shower? Most of you have probably said that or had somebody say that to you, maybe even within the last week. That's a result of our purity codes. Now, we don't even think of them as 
uh, some kind of ritual practice, but they are. Now, it doesn't have to be fully religious. I worship the God of health, therefore I clean my body and my hands. But Egypt said, and of course Hebrews also said, these animals are unclean. If they get in the food, which they are going to do in kneading bowls and in ovens, if they get in the food, then the food is unclean. If they get in the bed, then the bed is unclean. And if you can't eat and you can't sleep without contracting ritual impurity and being unable to worship your God, then your religious life is over. Now we, of course, thanks to the teaching of the New Testament, know that even if we're ritually impure, we can still worship God. Dare I say it, you're welcome here if you haven't showered in six weeks. Maybe somebody will take me up on that and I will back off. Never mind, you can't worship God if you've hiked the Appalachian Trail. Go get cleaned up. But the Egyptians didn't have the benefit of the New Testament teaching about ritual purity and how that's not what God wants. God, by sending them plagues, is sending them this pollution and saying... I can terminate your worship. I can make you unclean and unfit to come into the presence of the divine. The first plague, blood, says God holds the power of life and death because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The second plague, frog, says God holds the power of pollution and cleansing. So the threat is carried out, and of course the Egyptian magicians do the same thing. The magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. They're unable to reverse the curse. They are not lords of cleansing. They're only lords of pollution. We can make it worse, as they do in the first plague as well. The threat is duplicated, thus, again, calling Moses and Aaron's credential into question. Maybe they're just very powerful magicians but not giving Pharaoh any reason to say, ah, there is someone like the Lord their God. Anybody can make frogs come up on Egypt. But Pharaoh learns quickly, in fact, it happens in verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and says, pray for me. Pharaoh already knows. He's only one plague in, and he already knows This ain't his first rodeo, it's his second one, and he knows that only Yahweh can remove the plague. His magicians aren't prayer warriors, they can't take away the plague. Moses can pray for him and get the frogs out of there. Now, is this Pharaoh admitting God is in charge? I will worship? No, unfortunately, this is something we recognize. What is it? Well, it's an intellectual admission that God is right. By admitting that only God can take away this plague, Pharaoh is admitting that God sent the plague and therefore admitting that God is more powerful than Pharaoh is. But does that make Pharaoh say, I yield, I'm beaten, you can go? No, it doesn't. 
And so it is with us. God, you can't tell me what to do. Oh, I admit you're there. I admit you're infinitely powerful. But you want me to give up this sin? You want me to confess this? You want me to deal with what problem in my life? You want me to submit to who? Nope, I won't do it. Oh yes, you're omnipotent. Yes, you're my God. But not in this area, I won't obey. Pharaoh would never dream of denying Moses the right to have a God. Well, yeah, the Hebrews, they're a people. They need a God, of course. And Pharaoh even now knows who Yahweh is, right? And treat Yahweh, and I'll let the people go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Pharaoh no longer disputes the existence or the nature of Yahweh. All he disputes is Yahweh's right to boss Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh draws this other fascinating distinction. I think we've talked about this before, drawn by tyrants then as now. Pharaoh says, I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now what's the difference between Moses' demand, let my people go that they may serve me, and Pharaoh's rephrasing, I will let them go and sacrifice. The answer is that sacrifice is a much narrower category. To serve God is something you do with your whole life. Let my people go that they may be my servants. Right? Servanthood is a condition of being. I am God's servant. But worship, sacrifice, the rites of public worship are something we do and something that only therefore occupies a certain fraction of our time. Right? In our case, we might be in church activities three to four hours out of a 168-hour week. That's 2% at most of our time is spent doing what we're doing right now, public liturgical functions. Pharaoh is okay with sacrifice, at least when he's lying. Even though he's lying, he won't bring himself to say, I will let them serve Yahweh. He says, I will let them sacrifice to Yahweh. They can't serve Yahweh because they're serving me. They're my servants. They're my slaves. But I will give them time off and allow them to perform the functions of public worship that their religion demands. As I understand it, in the Soviet Union, church services were, for most of its history, legal and permitted. Public worship was carried out throughout the Soviet Union. What was not legal was to apply Christian doctrine or to act as though you believed it, to speak as though you believed it, anywhere outside the walls of your local church with its permit to operate. Thus, to go to church was legal. To disciple your children and teach them the catechism, to teach them to pray, to teach them to look to God and not the state, that was illegal. 
It's the same distinction made by Pharaoh so long ago. You may worship, you may not serve. You are my servants, you serve the mighty Pharaoh. Pharaoh will give you 2% of your time on that you can use to serve Yahweh, or to worship Yahweh. Sure, fine, whatever. And of course, even aside from legal, regulatory, state usurpation of power, sin, the world, the flesh, the devil, they say, they make the same distinction to us every single day. Oh yeah, worship God. Go for it, man. You want to go to church? You want to worship? Even you want to have private worship? Yeah, be my guest. Give money? Do whatever you want, as long as you don't seriously attempt to deal with your besetting sins. As long as you continue to serve sin with your main energy, time, and talent. As long as sin is your final boss. Right, it doesn't care if you participate in worship services 2% of your week. That's a scary reality. Even aside from the power of the state, which is certainly possible, certainly can make this distinction as Pharaoh did, our own hearts too often like this distinction. Oh, I worship God. Oh, I have my devotions. Oh, I do what I need to do. I'm pretty pleased, actually, with my level of religious observance. But if there's a sin in charge, there's something you won't deal with. Right As I said, that confession you won't make, that thing you won't work on, that area you won't address, that relationship that you've just consigned over to the well, that's off limits to God. That's, I'm allowed to be bitter there. Or I'm allowed to be lustful there. Or I'm allowed to have a bad attitude there. You're serving sin. So even if you're worshiping God every once in a while, you're serving sin. That's where Pharaoh is. Even when he's lying, he won't say more than, Worship. He will not say, serve. So Moses says to Pharaoh, get glory over me, Pharaoh. Which seems to mean something like, Pharaoh, I give you the honor of saying when the frogs leave. I am so completely master of this situation that you're welcome to be a suppliant. You can even name your time when you want the frogs to go. And so Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Calvin has this long rant about how Pharaoh is incredibly proud and stiff-necked because any normal human being would not have said tomorrow. He would have said, now. Get rid of the frogs now. Pharaoh didn't say tomorrow, though, even though that's what your text says. Pharaoh said, by tomorrow. Tomorrow is the absolute longest amount of time he's prepared to give. We all know how governments work, that they set a time. This will come into effect at some point in the future. 
So Pharaoh gives that future date. By tomorrow, let the frogs be gone. Not necessarily as a sign of his pride, but more as a sign of his realism. It'll take time to get rid of this many frogs. So Moses goes and he prays in order to show Pharaoh that there is no one like the Lord our God. No one else has power over cleanness and defilement. No one else can remove frogs or anything else that defiles. So when God takes away judgments in our life, when God takes away things that are chastening us in our life, do we learn this lesson that there is no one like Yahweh our God? When he answers your prayer exactly as you asked it. That shows that there's no one like him. Only he could do that. So Moses prays and the Lord humbly Responds. This is so incredible in verse 13. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Such a reversal. Over and over and over in Exodus, especially in the second half, it says, so Moses did according to the word of the Lord. God tells Moses what to do, and then we see Moses go do it. That's the basic pattern throughout the whole Bible. But here, this is the power of prayer. The Lord did according to the word of of Moses. That's the power of our mediator. The Lord did according to the word of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. And God did it. Right? God humbly submits himself under the rule of the mediator. The frogs die out. The people gather them together. They pollute the land one last time. And when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart. And didn't let him go. It's almost as though God lets himself be taken advantage of. Oh, I'll take away the plagues, Pharaoh. Even if you only gave one little lie and didn't do anything to let the people go. God isn't cruel. He doesn't force himself on people in a cruel fashion. Pharaoh doesn't know, though, that he's dealing with graciousness. He thinks Yahweh is a tyrant like himself. And so he can't believe that he just suckered Moses God. But then, of course, the more he thinks about it, the more he can believe that. I am just that brilliant. I am just that smart. I just fooled Yahweh God. Pharaoh's arrogance will be overturned in our text. Brothers and sisters, be sure you don't duplicate that arrogance in your own life. If I come away from an encounter with the Almighty saying, there's no one like Caleb Nelson. I tricked him that time. Wow. What What a guy. Right? Pharaoh hadn't tricked God. He'd only tricked himself. Pharaoh tricked himself into thinking he was in charge of the situation, even though the objective evidence all spread out before him when he looked out his palace balcony was 
God sends frogs. God takes away frogs. And I, Pharaoh, have absolutely no power to change any of that. But yet the upshot of the plague is that Pharaoh hardens his heart, doesn't learn that there's no one like God, instead thinks there's no one like Pharaoh. Hmm. Who would have thought that I could have bamboozled Moses' God? Right? When will we learn that we're not in charge, that God rules us and not vice versa? Oh, I got away with that sin. Well, what do you know? There's no one like me. Until you learn that there's no one like God, until you learn that God is in charge, until you learn the difference between worship with part of your life and service with your whole life, don't expect to be free. When you're ruled by sin, you're not free. Don't fall prey to Pharaoh's delusions. You think there's no one like you. The world is populated, right, with 7.8 billion suckers just like us. There's no one like the God we serve. Pharaoh's going to learn that lesson if it kills him. And God will teach it to you, too, if you're his child. No matter how many frogs it takes, no matter how many other disciplinary measures you need. God will teach you to stop thinking of yourself as hot stuff. Some of us have a long way to go in learning that. My mother told me a few years ago, Caleb, your problem is you believe your own press. As long as that thought in our mind is there's no one like me, I'll get through this because there's no one like me. Then we're in Pharaoh's camp. Right? Cuddling a frog all night long and then waking up in the morning and saying, I can beat God. Don't do that. You can't beat God. So if there's something he's calling you to deal with, deal with it. Or if he's calling you to keep up ordinary life, do it. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will show you that there is no one like him when you cast yourself on his mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to learn the lesson that there is no one like you. Father, please forgive us for our absolutely wretched habit of thinking that we are incomparable, that we are hot stuff, that we are impressive. And help us instead to humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that you might lift us up. We ask these things, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, whose word you heed. Amen.